back to one service next week at 10 o'clock. Hope you remember. Unless you want to get here really early, that's fine too. But 10 o'clock next week, one service. We are in the middle of a six-week pilot series on the book of Proverbs. And we are jumping around looking at different texts, taking a little test run. In the fall, we're going to go through the whole book, but for now, we're just trying out some different passages with an emphasis on preaching Christ in Proverbs, which means that we, we come to understand Proverbs and we preach the book of Proverbs like Christians. We, we act like Christ is showing up on the scene, which he has, and that's our interpreter grid, that way we look at and understand Proverbs. So, so far, we've looked at chapter 2 on the transcendence of wisdom, we looked at chapter 31 on the embodiment of wisdom, and we looked at chapter 3 last week on the incentives of wisdom. And with the remaining three weeks, we're going to start to look at those one-line proverbs that you're all familiar with. You've been wondering, when are we going to get around to the one-liners, the the one-verse proverbs? Well, here we go. Now, some people think that the best way to preach through the book of of Proverbs is to organize the one-verse, one-line Proverbs uh, and take them topically. Basically, what what we're saying is that Proverbs is not a book you start in verse 1 and you just go verse by verse by verse until you hit 31, because once you hit 10 through 31, it's a disaster. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the verses are not related. They're one-verse Proverbs that are isolated, and, and so it seems that the best way to approach these Proverbs is to take the topics that they talk about and group them together and then preach it that way. It's going to be topical preaching, so to speak, and I'm not very good at that, and you will soon see. I'm not a topical preacher, but Proverbs is very challenging for me, but it's a good challenge. It's like grouping some verses together topically. However, that being said, and that will be our approach, some scholars believe that there's actually some method to the madness in Proverbs 10 through 31, that there's actually some textual markers that connect the one-verse Proverbs to each other to make units. And so I was intrigued by this because a lot of popular scholars say this, and so I was reading. And, and the only problem with this method is that the scholars can't agree They can't agree on what exactly holds the verses together. And when they do agree on what holds the verses together, they end up with different units. Some have 10, some have 12. And and so it's a a very interesting thing to study. And so since this is a pilot series, I thought, you know, I'm going to entrust myself to some of these scholars who are much wiser than I, and I'm going to test one of these units that I think hold together. This is just my way of procrastinating dealing with the one-verse Proverbs. I'm just going to put one in a unit and deal with them as they link together, and next week we'll be all over the place. But for this morning, I thought it'd be wise for us to look at a unit that holds together in Proverbs chapter 12. In chapter 12, verses 16 through 23, the unit seems to be held together by words, as in it's talking about our speech. It begins and ends with the speech of a wise person and a foolish person. It's almost like the bread on a sandwich. If you look at verse 16 and 23, they're saying similar things. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent man ignores an insult. And verse 23 says, A prudent man conceals his knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. 
basically what, what it's saying is that, that it, it, the prudent man is silent and the fool is always talking, always blurting out. And so those are kind of like the bread of the sandwich that holds the unit together as the unit talks about words. And before I read it, I want to, want to give you a little some structure to look, to look for today. So let me put it up on the screen for you, part one and part two. So verses 16 through 19 are going to be foolish words versus wise words. Uh, wise words. And then part two will be foolish heart versus the wise heart and 20 and 23. Hopefully these little textual markers will help you keep the unit together. So I'm just going to read it to you. You can just stay seated. It's brief. Let me just read it and starting in verse 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. This was an interesting week for me. I was on jury duty. Really exciting. If you love jury duty, say yay, yay. So it seems like, um, I told my dad, he, he's also a pastor, and I said, Dad, I'm on jury duty. He always says, pastors never get picked. I said, well, Dad, why do they pick me every time? I mean, I've, I've been on a jury more than once, and I thought, surely I'm going to get picked again. So I show up uh, for jury duty, and, and it's funny, there's only like 40, 50 people in the room, and someone that, that, that uh, Joel Glad, who's connected with Dr. He was there too. Like, how does that happen? You know somebody on, surely uh, this will get me kicked out of jury duty, because we know each other. But we show up there, and we basically sit in a room all day, didn't even get called once. So it was, it was a very uh, uneventful week for me in jury duty, which I was very grateful. But as I think about trials and court cases, which I have witnessed before as a juror, when you think about the words that are used in a court case, did you know that every word counts? I mean, you say the wrong word, and it can be a, a grounds for a mistrial. You say the wrong word, and you can be held in contempt. And as the prosecutors and, and, and the defenders are, are giving their, their words, they can influence the jury with positive words or negative words, because in a courtroom, every word counts. In our relationship with God, every word counts. There are no wasted words in our lives. Our words are all laid out before God. And Jesus put it like this from the book of Matthew 12 and 36 through 37, that God will hold us accountable for our words. He says this. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, courtroom language, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So there is a coming judgment, this courtroom language, that based upon our words, it shows that every word counts. Your words show what's in your heart. So the righteous will reveal their hearts by their speech, 
as well as the wicked. Since every word does count, we want to make every single word we say count for the good of others and the glory of God. Every single word. We want no wasted words. We want them to count for the good of others and the glory of God. And I know just talking about this topic of words and the way we use our tongues and the way we use our mouths is, can be very discouraging because the book of James just talks about how the tongue is just out of control. Who can tame it? And even bringing up the topic can give you this sense of hopelessness. But I'm here to give you hope that you, I'm not joking, you could actually change your words. And the reason why you can change your words is because God can change your heart. So let's look at it. Starting in verses 16 through 19 with the foolish words versus the wise words. Look at verse 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. For those of you who have an NIV before you, uh, that translation of the Bible, I'm more familiar with that one. Let me put it up for you. Uh, It says, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Are you you like an easily annoyed person? The Bible calls you a fool, where you show your annoyance, immediately displaying your irritation, where the circumstances and interactions with other people that you have throughout the day or the situation just kind of just set you off like that. A fool shows annoyance at once. There's always going to be situations of people that set us off. Throughout your day, you cannot eliminate that. There's this book called War of Words by Paul Tripp, and he, and he tells a pretty funny story. Uh, it's a story about his teenage son coming up to him on a Thursday night and telling him that his science project is due the next day on a Friday. And it's a, I think it's a made-up story. He's just kind of creating a story to talk about all the ways that his teenage children annoy him. So he combined it into one story. And he, put it, he said like this, So my son comes up to me on a Thursday night and says, Dad, i got a science project due tomorrow. This is the first time the dad's heard about it. And the kid has known about it for two to three weeks. And so the dad tries to hold in his irritation. Just you can imagine. And he's, he's trying to be calm and cool and be the good Christian. He says, okay, what do you need? And the kid says, a little scared. <laughs> he says, I need some poster board, 1039. And the dad's like, okay, well, we got some cardboard laying around the house. We can kind of throw that together and create a poster board. There, poster board's taken care of. And the dad's like, oh, okay, is there anything else? And he said, yeah, there, there's one more. Yeah, okay, I need some markers. He says, oh, markers. Oh, my. all right, maybe we can find some dried up markers and just pour some water on them and make them work. And so, and then, and then the son is, is really nervous now, and he's like, oh, I need one more thing, dad. And the dad's like, oh, what do you need? And, and, the, and the son says, I, and he's scared to death. He said, I, I need 12 baby chickens. And the... T- <laughs> Dad's like flipping out. It's like, you want me to just go down to the all-night chicken store and, and pick you up a dozen? And just, you can just see how things can build in our lives and where we can just explode and go off with irritation. And, and it's going to happen. There's always going to be situations and scenarios that set us off. But it's also going to be insults. 
the irritations, okay, sometimes you can deal with it, but what about when someone insults you or intentionally tries to hurt you? Well, look how the wise person responds. It says, the prudent man ignores an insult, doesn't strike back, doesn't respond out of anger. He ignores the insult. Now, do you think this prudent man feels the irritation, the anger, the hurt inside? Yeah, but that prudent person, the wise person, is not responding out of the pain. How do you do that? I mean, the Proverbs just tell us, do this. Don't be like this foolish, irritable person. But when you get insulted, be, be wise. Well, I, I'm like, well, how? I don't think we can ignore the New Testament. I don't think we should ignore Jesus. In fact, I definitely don't think we should ignore the New Testament when the Bible tells us specifically that Jesus, it actually uses these words, sets an example, uses those words, for us to follow when we are insulted. We've got to make a connection here. Come on, we've got to make it. So I'm going to share this with you. This is powerful stuff. This comes from the book of First Peter. Let's not put it up yet. Let me set the context for you, okay? In the New Testament, there are Christians who are slaves or they're servants. And they, some of them have masters that are good, but some of them have masters who are evil. In the book of Peter, he instructs these servants. He says, look, when your masters are evil and they punish you, even when you do good things, when they slander you, even when you do good things, respond with graciousness. Continue to be faithful. And then they give the example. Peter gives the example of Jesus. This is what it says. 1 Peter 2.21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And here's the wording. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So God has called you as a Christ follower to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered for your sin. So you're to imitate Christ, his example, he shows restraint. This is the way he responds to evil. Verse 22 and 23. It says, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So get this. Jesus never sinned. No deceit ever came out of his mouth, and yet he suffered at the hands of evil men. And as he suffered, he did not strike back. He showed restraint. He remained silent. And you say, well, he's Jesus. Of course he can do that. How did Jesus remain silent? Did you catch it? It says he entrusted himself to God. You know what that means? When someone insults you, when someone goes off on you, when someone sets you off, you can show restraint because you are not God. You do not have to punish. Leave it up to God. That's what Jesus did. He goes, I'm going to entrust myself to God. He will take care of the one who is doing this to me. I don't need to go off on them at all. He entrusted himself to God, and so can we. And get this. We have the ability. You cannot say you do not have the ability. You have the ability. And you know how you have the ability to respond rightly? One more verse. 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You know what that verse says? You're not destined for sinful responses. 
You've died. You're dead to your old self. You've been crucified with Christ. There is a new life in you. You can now walk in righteousness. Submit to him. Follow his example. And you have power to say no to these outbursts of, of going off or trying to hurt someone that hurts you. Because you've died with Christ, you can now live for righteousness. So let's keep that in mind. Let's keep the example of Christ in mind as we go through the rest of these verses. It's very powerful stuff. So back to our our passage in Proverbs, verse 17. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. All right, we're back to the courtroom here, a little courtroom setting. Now, in order for a judge in a courtroom to make a right decision and for a jury to make a right decision, they need to have truthful testimony that is in line with reality. But a false witness, a perjurer, is trying to distort reality to throw the judge off, to throw the jury off, which is, which is wicked. It, it just, it's a distortion of reality. But not only does the distortion of reality mess up a judge's decision, but it also messes up other people's lives. When someone lies to you, it just throws you off. You're not quite sure how to respond. Maybe you're buying into something and believing something that's not true because it's a distortion of reality. I mean, just, just think about who's in the news a lot right now. I don't know if you pay attention to the news, but maybe you've heard of the, of the, of the ex-politician John Edwards. He's in the news right now. He's on trial. And the reason why he's on trial is because he committed adultery. He has had a mistress, and then his mistress had a baby, and then he used campaign funds to cover it up. Not a good idea. All around. And so they're trying to figure out, is he guilty of using these campaign funds to cover up? So he's, he's, did he distort reality in his lying? But get this, that's the public trial. His actions has bearing not just on political things, financial things, courtroom things, but also upon his family. Because when he was going through all this adultery and cover-up, there was a little bit of confession to his wife, and she stood by his side, but he continued to lie to her. He continued to run around behind her back and trick her and and deceive her. And and, and you know what? She was also at that time going through, uh, struggling with cancer. It's like, what are you doing, guy? And then in 2010, she died. And we are told, and it's, it's been speculated, that before her death. I mean, if he would have just repented and moved on and quit trying to cover it up, I, she would have embraced him. Because of all the cover-up before we were told before um, she died, she just totally cut him off of her estate. Lies destroy. They kill. Verse 18. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrust. The ling, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You ever think about that? Reckless, rash, thoughtless words can be like taking out a sword and just running it through somebody, wounding them, killing them. You ever think that your words are actually like that? And, and even if you don't kill someone with your words, when you put a sword in somebody with your words and you pull it out, that thing doesn't heal up right away, does it? No, you have a hole. Your words just went through me. They hurt me. You can pull the sword out. You can say sorry, but I got a hole here that hurts. Because our words, what we say, can be used like a sword. Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it 
will eat its fruits. So the tongue can be used for evil, but can also be used for good. As you notice in verse 18, it says, The tongue of the wise brings healing. Don't you love it when someone speaks encouraging words to you, when someone speaks reconciling words to you, when someone speaks uh, words that are seeking to build you up. They're, they're healing words. Ephesians 4.29 puts it like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Can you imagine your words giving grace? No wasted words. All your words are just giving grace to those who are listening. About 10, 12 years ago, I went to go see, like I mentioned this all the time, this wise older man. This man just poured so much wisdom into me, and he wanted to help me control my words so that when they came out, they were for the good of others and the glory of God. And he said, okay, before you speak, I want to give you a set of questions to ask yourself before you speak. And so he gave me these questions, and I've been using them and sharing with you ever since. And his first question, before you say anything, is the question number one. And he says, will it help? Before you say anything, is it going to help the situation? Is it, is it going to help someone else? Will it help? Second question you want to ask is, is it designed to hurt? Can you imagine asking that before you say anything? What I'm about to say, is it designed to take out my sword and just thrust it through someone else? Is it designed to hurt? Third question. Would I say that if that person were here? Now, do you get that question? That's gossip. That's talking behind someone's back. That's trying to, to, to stick the sword through someone who's not there. Would I say the same thing if that person was right here? That's a good question. And the fourth one was, is it self-seeking? That means, what I'm about to say, am I going to totally just talk about myself Am I going to totally just focus on myself? Am I going to try to manipulate my, manipulate my words in some way that I can, you can be impressed about me? And I've added a new question this week. That I found a new question I want to add to this this week. It's number five. It's from Paul Tripp. It's a great question. He says, does your talk encourage faith and personal spiritual growth in those around you? I like that. Does your, does your way you talk, is it really building people up in their relationship with Jesus? You see, all of these are healing words. We want healing words in our friendships, healing words at our schools and work and our families. We want to be the catalyst that sparks these healing words, not destructive words, but healing. And then verse 19, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Your healing words, they're going to last forever. Lying tongue, momentary, it's going to pass away. I don't know if you've noticed the progression. Uh, there's this uh, professor, Bruce Walkie, he gives a progression here. If, if you notice, again, in verse 16, the foolish person, he gets irritated. Then in verse 17, he has dishonest speech. And then in verse 18, the foolish person has violent speech. 
And then in verse 19 is the foolish person passing away. So you can see this downward spiral of the foolish person. But there's also a progression of the wise person. In verse 16, the wise person has restrained speech. In verse 17, now it's truthful speech. In verse 18, it's healing speech. And now in verse 19, he is enduring forever. Isn't that amazing? Like, one, the fool's going down, down, down in his speech, and the wise person's going escalating up, up, up. It's, it's going to last forever. And why is it going to last forever? Because your lips are connected to your body. <laughs> and when you speak, it's who you are. It's what's inside your heart. And so the lips are going to endure forever. But the tongue of the foolish person is also connected to the body. And so that person, in line with its, his character or her character, is going to pass away. This wise speech or this foolish speech comes from a person. And ultimately, comes from the heart. Now let's start moving away from all of our words and start looking more and more at our hearts because that's where the words come from. So part two is the foolish heart and the versus the wise heart. Let's look at verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. It's such a bummer that this, this is the way it works. Don't you just wish you could cover up your heart, but your, your mouth is ultimately going to give you away. It's so hard to restrain your speech, and this deceiving fool is given away by his, his mouth. Jesus put it like this, a very famous passage in Luke 6, 43 and 45. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So get this. Good or bad speech comes from the heart. Doesn't doesn't mean that believers aren't ever going to say, Foolish things, hurtful things, but that, of course, you want to repent and you want God to continue and cleanse our heart. But we need to understand, as believers, what's coming out starts in here. And the, the most famous response if you, in, in counseling offices and counseling uh, books, uh, on, on courtrooms, on TV shows, the, the most challenging response you'll ever get to explain your words you're, you're, you're professional in it. I'm professional in it. When we say the wrong words, it's always someone else's fault, right? Or it's a circumstance that made me say or complain or gripe or yell. It's always something outside of me. And Jesus says, uh, excuse me, no. <laughs> no, no. It's here. That's where the words came from. No one made you say these things. Your circumstances didn't make you. It's here. That's what Jesus says. This is the way Paul Tripp puts it in his book, War of Words. He says like this. Word problems reveal heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasion for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. 
Now, I, 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 I fight against this. I don't, I don't even like that quote. Even though I like it, I don't like it because it's so true, but I don't like it. Because I always say, look, if that person didn't come into my life, I wouldn't be like this. You ever say that? Well, if that circumstance didn't happen, I wouldn't have blown up like that. So it's that person, and it's that circumstance's fault. And, and it's almost like I come up to you and say, okay, let's get rid of that person, and let's get rid of that circumstance. There's just going to be another person that comes along. There's just going to be another circumstance that comes along. There's always going to be something that's going to expose your heart. And so that's why I think we should stop looking out here and say, okay, 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 I'm going to confess for the first time, it's it's in here, it's mine, not your fault, No, nobody else's fault, it's right here, I'm going to own it, I'm going to confess it, and I'm going to start to find forgiveness in Jesus and start to have him change my heart, change my words. But it's not just like this, it's not like saying, oh, I'm a sinner. Bummer. I went off on you. Sorry. Jesus, sorry. I confess. Please forgive me. Change my heart. It's more than that. Because if you're just looking to confess, blurt out, confess, blurt out, confess, blurt out, then basically what you're doing, you're doing something the Bible calls putting off sin. You're really good at putting off. Okay? You're, you're good at confessing. You're good at repenting. But you're not good at putting on. You know what that means? When you put off sin, you put something, get sin away from you, but you got to put something in its place because you don't put something in its place, you're going to go back to that sin and you're going to think the Christian life is all about confessing. It's all about putting off. It's all about repenting. It's all about hanging out in the confessional booth, right? <laughs> it's what it's about. Just keep putting off, putting off. No, you got to put something in its place, something positive. And so... Look what this verse says about putting something on. Look at verse 20 again. It says, but those who plan peace have joy. That's wonderful. So instead of making plans in your heart to hurt someone else, you start making plans in your heart, schemes, plotting to do someone good. And as you start to step out and think about how you can do someone good, It's going to create joy within you. As you think about, okay, who can I reconcile with? What words of healing can I give? What words of blessing can I give? As you start to do that, your plans start to shape you. Derek Kidner is an old commentator. He says, the plans you shape, shape you. So if you're having difficulty with someone right now, I don't know who it is. Everybody's probably got someone in their life they're having difficulty with right now. Maybe it's your parent, a kid, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, someone that maybe someone that's flat out your enemy, someone that you're having a difficult time with right now. Rather than continue this little cycle of repenting for your words, repenting for your words, repent, keep repenting, of course, but why don't you put in its place a plan, a plot, a scheme for something good? to do something healing, to do something that's full of peace. Think about a kid you're really struggling with. You say, you know what? I'm going to plan and pray peace for that kid. It's your roommate. I'm going to plan and pray peace for my roommate. I'm going to plot schemes of peace. 
And watch, your heart will change. It'll be full of joy. And as your heart changes, your words start to change towards this person because you have a plan for peace and place. It's not just repent, repent, repent. You put off and you put something on, a plan of peace. Verse 21. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. If we keep this verse in the context of our unit, we're talking about words. It's saying that your words can get you into trouble. (laughs) And you know what I'm talking about. Your words can get you into trouble. But your words can also keep you from trouble. For example, Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So righteous speech can protect you from yourself. If you're intent on plotting peace and planning peace from others, you'll be protected from your own mouth. Verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Isn't it amazing that every word we say is uttered in the sight of God? Just, he sees all your words. He, they're, they're done all before him. And God is the one who sets a standard and determines what is moral for our speech and what is moral for our speech. And it says right here that he hates, he detests the lying lips. But he delights in the one whose speech is faithful, who's, who's encouraging, who's building up, who is the wise person. And I, and I think about this because not many people in here, maybe there's some of you who are doing the cover-up like John Edwards. In some affair, you're just covering it up, and you're lying, lying, lying to cover your tracks. For the most part, I, I just tell the story because there may be one or two or three who are doing some type of cover-up right now. But most of you, what you struggle with is little, small, small, isn't that funny, small lies where you kind of shade the truth, you kind of work things around. And a lot of that comes from our heart. And I want to explain it in two different ways. I heard about a guy this week, and I also heard from a girl. I'm going to say it this way. So the guy was explaining it this way. He was talking about he and his wife. He and his wife, like most marriages, have problems with lying. I I know we wouldn't ever say that, but you have problems with kind of reworking words to manipulate circumstances. Now, he said that the, the problem that he has in his heart is that he will tell little lies or cover up truths or fudge a little in order to please other people. So his problem is that he wants to tell people what they want to hear. He wants to please people. And so he will adjust the truth just a little bit in order to please other people. That's his problem. But he said his wife's problem, she doesn't care what other people feel. (laughs) She doesn't have a problem trying to please people. She doesn't fear people. Now, her problem is, as he's explaining, is that she has a problem with wanting things to be efficient and done in a timely manner. And so she will actually lie fudge the truth in order to get things done efficiently. Let's get this moving. Let's keep things going. And if we need to adjust the truth a little bit to keep things moving, she'll do that. I also heard from a woman this weekend. I'm reading this book. And this woman's name is Lydia Brownback. I know some of you may be reading this book next fall on on wisdom. And she says, women tell uh, half-truths, white lies, or anger-generated vows. And these are the examples she gave. These are not my examples. These are hers, so take it up with her. So, for example... Two women are talking, and a woman comes up to another woman and says, do I need to lose weight? 
Don't ever ask your husbands that question. Ask another girl. But if she says, do I need to lose weight? And, and, and if they do, she says, you tell them. Don't just try to make them feel better if they do. Another example, she says, is that if you have said that you are going to discipline your child for wrongdoing, and then when they do wrong, then discipline them. Follow through on your words. I count to three and you're not done, I'm going to follow through. One, two, three, here I come. I mean, follow through. Don't just make stuff up. And then she also says, if a coworker says to you, I'm, skip, I'm skipping work today um, with a personal day in order to go to the beach. Now, don't tell your coworker, oh, that's such a great idea. You deserve it. Especially if they don't deserve it, especially if you don't think it's good at all to do something unethical like that. So don't, don't be careful with what we say. These half-truths or anger-generated vows. Be careful with our words because God delights when we speak truthfully to one another and encourages them. And then the last verse. This is a good classic verse. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. This is great. Do you notice it comes from the heart again? It says the heart of fools proclaims folly. It's the overflow of the heart. This is the person who likes to just blab out. Blab, blab, blab. Always want to talk about something. And even if they have wisdom, they often give it at the wrong time. But the wise person, what does the prudent person does? The wise person has this knowledge but conceals it. So the wise person understands. The wise person can even see a situation that needs to be fixed. Doesn't say anything. The wise person does not have to give his opinion on every subject. I'm going to say it again. The wise person does not have to give his opinion on every subject. All right? So you want to give your opinion? No, you don't have to. It's not that the wise person never speaks. The wise person just waits for the right time. And it's very timely. He's picking, waiting, 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 just the right time. And at that point, the wise person will speak. There's a verse in Proverbs 10, 19 that says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Are you starting to see that if you talk a lot, there's more chance for sin. It's almost like our, our lesson today is, shh, shh. That's my sermon. Amen. Shh. But it's like, restrain your words. But when you finally do speak, make sure you run the words through a filter. And I, and I gave you the filter questions earlier. You know, will it help? Is it designer? So I'm going to keep running it through a filter. I, I was thinking about it like this. Actors and actresses, I'm not one, but actors and actors memorize lines. That means they know all the lines they're going to say, so when they get in a situation, they just say the lines that they already have. And so I've, I've in, in the past, I've, I've enjoyed trying to memorize lines or, 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 or parts of the Bible in order to recite them to you. And, you. and you know what happens? This happens every time. I don't know if you notice this. But when I recite the Bible to you, I always mess up. Almost every single time. No matter how much I memorize the Scripture, 
I mess up. And I, was, I could not believe it. I can't, I mean, every time my wife, I go home afterwards, she say, did, did you mess up today? Yep, messed up again. Did people know? Nope, they didn't know it at all. But I messed up again. It's like I messed up every time. How is it possible to memorize something and think you know it and then mess up? And so I went to go to a professional and I said, I had to get some professional counseling. I said, hey, when I memorize words, I always mess up. Why? And this professional said, you need to say the words in your head before you say them. I said, what? He said, yeah, yeah, just say them in your head and then say them. And not only have I found that to be very helpful, but it's also helpful in thinking about filtering our words. Create a filter. Say them here. Say them here. How do they sound? Okay, say them here. Say them here. Say them here. Are they going to be good for others? Are they going to build someone up? Is it going to glorify God? Okay, say them here. Now, the problem is, is though we want our words to be filtered for the good of others and the glory of God, the problem is that sometimes, okay, a lot of times, our filters are kind of dirty. They're tainted with sin. They're clogged up. And so we think the words are going to be helpful, and you're like, whoa, that, that did not work well. That really hurt someone. And so since we have this, this clogged filter, dirty filter, what we need to do, we need to keep, I, I believe like this, is, this is like the big thing. We need to keep coming back to Christ to cleanse our hearts. As we find in him forgiveness for our hearts, for our sins, he starts to change our hearts, and then he starts to change our words. Because think about Jesus. Please think about Jesus. He never sinned with his words. Isn't that astonishing? He never said the wrong word, always the right word, always at the right time. He didn't do any of the sinful sword thrust. He never lied. No deceit was found in his mouth. He never wasted a word. Every word that Jesus spoke, count it. He always had the right words at the right time for the good of others and the glory of God. Every single word, no wasted words came out of Jesus' mouth. And so you would think at the end of his life, the father would see Jesus and say, you are awesome. You never sin. I commend you. But are those the words that Jesus got from the father? I mean, think about it. At Jesus' baptism, when he, the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Remember that? And then at the transfiguration, remember? Up on the mountain. The voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then at the cross, you think, okay, what are your words, God? What are you going to do to commend your Son? And what words did Jesus get on the cross? Nothing. Pastor Timothy Keller said that Jesus got the silent treatment. God's wrath was pouring out on him. And Jesus is like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because Jesus got the silent treatment from the Father, because he was in on the cross bearing our sins, guess what? We don't get the silent treatment for the, from our Father. Through faith in Jesus, we, we hear, you are my child. You are the one I love. We hear the words from Romans 8, there's no condemnation. We hear the words from also Romans 8 that says God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God because Jesus got the silent treatment. We get words from commendation from our Father. 
And so, like, oh, that feels good. That's loving. That's something that fills my heart, forgiveness. And so we continue to go to Jesus to change our hearts. That kind of love will change our words. And so we want to keep coming back to Jesus to fill our hearts. And out of the overflow of our hearts, we will start to speak for the good of others and the glory of God. Let's pray. We really want to have encouraging words, Father. We really want to build others up and not tear them down. And we just ask that you would change our hearts so we can speak words that build others up and glorify you. And so we just confess our sins. And we want to put off our sins. We ask that you would help us to plot and plan peace for others with our words and our actions. For their benefit and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.